Welcome to the No Fear Podcast of First Presbyterian Church. My name is Bob Fuller, Senior Pastor of First Presbyterian Church in San Antonio, Texas, with your No Fear Word of the Day. Welcome back to the No Fear Podcast from First Presbyterian Church of San Antonio, Texas. My name is Bob Fuller, Senior Pastor of First Presbyterian Church, and I want to thank you for being with us today. I began this No Fear Podcast back in March at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic to provide a weekly moment of biblical encouragement during this challenging time. Last week, I interviewed our Connections Coordinator, Wendy Garcia, about an exciting event in the life of the church our grand reopening at 4th and Alamo in the heart and center of downtown San Antonio on Pentecost Sunday, May 31st. But going into that podcast last week, I had no idea that in a world already turned upside down, we were about to be flipped one more time. Last week, about the time I was finishing production of that podcast, George Floyd, an African-American man, was detained and killed while in custody of four Minneapolis, Minnesota policemen. By now, the video recording of that event and the horror it represents are well known to people all over the country and around the world. George Floyd was on the ground for nine minutes with a knee on his neck, slowly dying, pleading for his life until there was nothing left. On the video, you can clearly hear him pleading, I can't breathe. When I first saw the videotape for myself, I thought, how can this be happening again? There are four officers there. One has his knee on a man's neck, clearly choking the life out of him, and the other three are just standing there. There are witnesses. There are cameras. Why isn't somebody doing something about this? Is a black man's life worth nothing anymore? Can a black man be killed in broad daylight by police, in front of witnesses, in front of cameras, without impunity? We don't televise executions in the electric chair or the gas chamber or with lethal injection. But that's what this was. This was not an arrest. It was a televised execution. Immediately, there were protests and then demonstrations as long-restrained anger and desperation demanded a hearing. How could this happen again? But where there had been ambivalence or rationalization in the past, the video made crystal clear what had happened. This act of violence violated every norm of good police procedure, civil respect, and common humanity. It had been universally condemned by every moral and rational witness, from politicians to the man or woman on the street, and resolute demand for justice for George Floyd echoed across this country in both big cities and small towns. First, it started in communities of color, but as awareness grew, so did the solidarity and people of every political persuasion, economic group, race, religion, and region stood up to demand justice for George Floyd and his family. But the calls for justice were not for George alone. George Floyd's death has awakened fresh courage to name and denounce the malignancy of cultural racism manifest so often in police brutality against minorities. As the week progressed, All four of the officers involved were fired from the Minneapolis Police Department. The primary officer involved was charged with murder and manslaughter, and now the other three have been charged as accessories for aiding and abetting in the crime. But even with firings and arrests, 
George Floyd's death uncapped a gusher of pain and fear and anger, boiling just below the surface of our vision. And as we all know too well, that pain and fear and anger energized thousands of people to demonstrate and say, enough is enough. At first, the demonstrations were earnest but peaceful. But then, as bad actors saw the opportunity, the peaceful demonstrations took an ugly turn and became nightly riots. Violence undermined the message of justice and vandalism disemboweled businesses, libraries, banks, and whole neighborhoods. How many business dreams and jobs have gone up in smoke in the nightly chaos of this last week? Righteous indignation was drowned out by anarchy. After nightfall, there were no speeches or challenging aspirations, no songs of inspiration and higher purpose, just profanity-laced tirades of hate. As protesters turned from their cause to taking selfies for social media and as looters filled trucks with merchandise and rolled shopping carts full of liquor down the street, it was clear that opportunism had trumped idealism. From Minneapolis to New York, to Santa Monica, to Atlanta, to Washington, D.C., to San Antonio, the violence and vandalism spread like a prairie fire, and the message of justice was choked out by the smoke of chaos. Molotov cocktails, rubber bullets, tear gas, and bricks took the place of dialogue. As I'm recording this podcast one week after the death of George Floyd, it's still not clear how all this will end. Over the last few days, I have been consumed by the tumult around us. I've felt like I'm paddling down a raging river in a Class 5 rapid. I've spent a lot of time in reflection, but I'm still angry. I'm brokenhearted. I'm scared. But I also know that I don't understand the pain and the fear that other people feel. On Tuesday, I read an article by pastor and writer Jim Dennison of Dallas. He said some things about me that I could not have expressed better myself. Of course, He was referring to himself in this article, but I will quote him here, and I'll also claim these ideas about me. He wrote, I am a white person who has never faced a single moment of racial discrimination in my 61 years of life. As a result, I cannot pretend to understand what it is like to be unfairly treated because of the color of my skin. I grew up in a middle-class community. As a result, I cannot understand what it's like to despair of a better financial future. I've never been treated unfairly by the criminal justice system. As a result, I can't understand what it's like to fear the police and the courts. I do not own or work at a business affected by the violence of recent days. And as a result, I cannot understand what it's like to see my dreams and future destroyed in response to a tragic death in Minneapolis, for which I am not at fault. With the exception of being 10 years younger, those words describe me to a T. I'm just like Jim Dennison. I've never felt the pain or suffered the way so many in our African-American and minority communities have just because of the color of their skin or their address or their background. Still, while confessing that perspective, I have prayed and I've studied. I've spoken to and listened to friends and family and I've watched and read hours of reports trying to find some clear path through these waves. 
On Monday, as I was reading, the Lord drew me to a story from Mark chapter 15. It's the story of Jesus' trial before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. As you may remember, after Jesus was arrested in the garden, he was dragged before the temple authorities, falsely convicted of trumped-up charges and condemned as a heretic and a blasphemer. His accusers dragged him back and forth between the local puppet king, King Herod, and the imperial Roman authority, trying to find someone to execute the sentence of death. The story goes like this. Now at the feast, Pilate, the Roman governor, used to release for the people one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison, who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man named Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead of Jesus. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This is a story of injustice at its most bald. An innocent man put to death by a corrupt and indifferent system to maintain the status quo interests of certain people, validated by the mob, to keep the peace. Mark Twain once wrote that, History rarely repeats itself, but it often rhymes. And as I have read and reread this story again for myself, and as I've discussed it at length with friends, I find some interesting shades of our own moment. Of course, Jesus is the main character of the story. But for a few minutes, I want to take a look at the other characters in the story. First, there are the temple authorities, the priests, and the other leaders of the people. Regardless of whether they liked the Romans or not, they had decided to make the best of it, to give in to their fate, to keep their heads down, and try to prosper under Roman rule. We might think of them as collaborators, but we also might think of them in these terms. These are the people who feel threatened by any change to the status quo. They're the ones who are happy with the system because the system works for them. They are the hammer, all too happy to beat down the nail that sticks itself out. If Jesus had just remembered his place, if he'd played by their rules, if he'd stayed in his lane, they wouldn't have had a problem with him. I don't believe that they objected to his miracles or his teachings so long as it didn't contradict their interpretation of the law. He became their enemy when he started to criticize them, and he called them out for putting their own system in their own interests ahead of the poor and the weak and the sick and outsiders of every sort. And of course, they were most irate about his claims, not only to speak for God, but to be the Christ, to be the Messiah. By doing that, he not only offended them, but he asserted his own authority, an authority that challenged their authority, and he put their comfortable, fragile, complicit collaboration with the Romans in jeopardy. He did not speak for the people. They spoke for the people, and they could not abide any competition. Then there's Pontius Pilate, the ruthless politician. 
Here's a man who knows that Jesus is innocent and even admits it, and yet for the sake of satisfying the crowd, turns him over for torture and execution. This is injustice in all of its depravity. He's only interested in the preservation of his power, and he doesn't care how other people suffer in the pursuit of that power or maintenance of his order. He was just trying to protect his life. He was just trying to protect his position and maybe move up in the world. And if some Jew, some peasant like Jesus of Nazareth got in his way or became an obstacle or a problem, he was happy to step over him or step on him or grind him under the boot of his heel. It didn't matter to him because this Galilean was not even a real person. He didn't matter. To Pilate, his life didn't matter. Next comes Barabbas. We don't know much about Barabbas or his background, but what we do know from Scripture is that Barabbas was a man of violence. Scripture tells us that he was a radical, an anarchist, an insurrectionist, and a murderer. This is a man who vented his anger at society's problems with violence. To me, he can represent both a killer cop who apathetically takes another man's life or a mob looter and agitator who chooses to break and burn and kill rather than listen and talk and pray. He represents the violence of the system that uses jails and bullets to keep people down. And he represents the narcissistic thug who uses demonstrations as a cover to destroy, burn down businesses, and ruin the fruit of another man's labor in his own tantrum of resentment. He is anger incarnate. In some manifestations, Barnabas wears a police uniform. In others, he wears a black hoodie, a face mask, and sunglasses. And then there is Jesus the man of love, the teacher, the man of healing, the man who stood over death by raising the dead, and he stood over judgment by preaching forgiveness. But he was also the man who dared to say that his vision requires love, love for God, love for our neighbors, and love for one another. And not just love as a feeling, but sacrificial love, love that seeks justice, that sows kindness and walks in humility before God. But then Jesus went too far. Many people thought that he overplayed his hand because he didn't just preach love, he demanded repentance. He committed a cardinal sin. He went from preaching to meddling. The way of love that Jesus describes means more than just loving the people that you like. It means more than just loving the people who are closest to you. It means loving the people that you would prefer to hate. It means reconciling with people rather than defeating them. It means forgiving those who have hurt you. It means caring about people that you would prefer to kick to the side because they're in your way. It means slowing down so that others can catch up. It means freely giving what you have so that others will have what they need. It means surrendering your power for the benefit of the powerless. And finally, there's the crowd. So easily manipulated externally by those who want to defend the status quo, and so susceptible internally because of their own frustration, greed, or rage. When given a choice, between Jesus and Barabbas, the man of love and the man of violence, 
they choose Barabbas. Not simply pleading for Barabbas' release, but demanding Jesus' execution. They demand, crucify him to slake their fury. And the crowd became a lynch mob. I believe they chose Barabbas because he is the one that is most like them. He's the man who does everything they wish they could do, who lashes out, who strikes down, who vents every degree of their boiling anger. Unfortunately, they remind me of us right now. Angry about the pandemic, angry about the quarantine, angry about the economy, angry about losing our jobs, angry about politics, angry about racism, angry about murder. When it comes down to it, they don't want justice. They want blood. They are too much like us, and we are too much like them. Faced with a terrible choice. A choice between the man of love and the man of violence. Every time we choose the way of violence and death, we choose Barabbas over Jesus. Every time we choose injustice to satisfy the crowd or wash our hands of injustice rather than repent and take responsibility, we choose Barabbas over Jesus. Whenever we wash our hands to the pain of others, we choose the way of Pilate. The Minnesota police officer who choked George Floyd to death chose the way of Barabbas. The looters and rioters who are bringing violence to our streets have chosen Barabbas over Christ. But every time law-abiding citizens excuse police brutality and racial profiling, the violation of civil rights, or validate racism in the name of law and order, we too choose Barabbas over Jesus. And any time activists or otherwise peaceful protesters excuse arson or looting and pillaging, or destruction of communities and homes and businesses and libraries, or condone terror tactics and legitimize mob violence, or manipulate grieving, desperate people to effect change, those people too then choose Barabbas instead of Jesus. How easily we seek to satisfy the crowd. How easily we ignore poverty and injustice because the broken system works for us. How easily we ignore the desperate cries of the brokenhearted because they yell too loudly or curse too much. How easily we rationalize violence for the sake of the greater good. How easily we howl our fury, crucify him. And then how easily we wash our hands of it all. 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth, Son of Man and Son of God, was legally murdered by the state while the mob cheered it on. One week ago, George Floyd was murdered by a policeman while other officers looked on. It was not the first time it has happened, and it will not be the last time it will happen. But the good news is that the death of Jesus was not the end of the story. At the Festival of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter stood before a crowd and declared, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, 
This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter was saying, you thought that Jesus was dead. You thought that justice was broken. You thought that death had won and that God was not real or that he was impotent. But you were wrong and here is your proof. God has proven his love for us by the death of his son on the cross. And he has proven his power over death by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. Death could not hold him. Jesus is alive and God is real. And we, his people, are back because the Lord keeps his promises. And God the Holy Spirit has empowered his people with his truth, his vision, his power, and his mercy. You thought it was over, but nothing is over. Nothing is finished until the Lord says it's over. Right now, it would be really easy to believe that it is over. Either it's over because George Floyd is dead, or it is over because peaceful demonstrations have given way to mob violence. But it is not over, because there is nothing in the earth below or the heavens above that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Death cannot hold him. Corruption cannot take him, and nothing in this world can defeat him because God is sovereign. He is the creator of the universe, and he is in control. What that means for us and for others is that this is not over. In spite of the death and the destruction and the chaos, it's not over. And George Floyd did not die in vain because death is not the last word for Jesus. Our God is a God of justice, and that means that black lives matter, and it means that the life of George Floyd matters. In the words of our brother and associate pastor Mitchell Moore, God hears the cry for justice, and so should our church. God heard the cry of the first unjust murder in history and the cries for justice from Sodom and Gomorrah. Our God is a God of justice, who practices justice, loves justice, and commands his people to seek justice. God shows his love through giving his life to satisfy the justice required from the vandalism of our sin. Those who receive his grace should use our lives to show his love to our neighbors, crying out for justice. The prophet Micah wrote, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? The world is paying attention, and I believe that God is going to use this moment to change us in ways that we have resisted for generations. This may not be the moment when we see the death of racism, but I believe that God is dealing racism a mortal blow. As God said to Moses, I have heard my people's cry. God the Father has heard the cry of generations of people who have been crying out, I can't breathe. 
and this time it will not be drowned out by the mob, and it will not be ignored by the comfortable. The choices we make right now matter. I think that we all like to believe that had we been back in Pilate's court deciding on the fate of Jesus or Barabbas, we all would have chosen Jesus. Unfortunately, I think the sad truth is that most of the time, many of us would have chosen Barabbas because he so often reflects and represents the anger or the desperation we feel. It is so much easier to choose the way of violence and the way of injustice than it is to choose the more difficult path of justice. But right now, that is the choice that we have to make. We as the church, as a nation, as a community, and even as individuals need to test the things that we believe and ask ourselves, am I choosing Barabbas or am I choosing Jesus? Am I choosing the man of violence or the man of love and peace? As a church, this is a conversation we not only need to have, it's a conversation we need to lead. Over the next few weeks, I'm going to be calling on our church to think deeply, pray deeply, and talk openly about our past and about our future. Jesus Christ has shown us the way of peace, and he has opened wide the door of repentance so that we can be set free from our own prejudices, our own sin, and the captivity of our own idols, both now and in the future. God has said, I have heard the cry of my people. And now it's time for the church to say, we have heard the cry as well, and we are going to do something about it. This is an unusual week, and this is an unusual edition of the No Fear Podcast. So today, I want to conclude the podcast in a different kind of way. I want to share with you the benediction, the blessing that I pray over our church every Sunday as we conclude our worship. Now go forth into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Return to no person evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Love and serve the Lord, rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the road rise to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine full upon your face and the rains fall soft upon your fields. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the palm of his hand. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
peace, no justice.